0: have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. We'll read from Acts chapter 3 verse 1 all the way to the almost ending of chapter 4, we'll stop in verse 31. So this is a very long section that we'll read together, but that, this is the text for this morning, Acts 3, 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 31. Look with me at the text. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus From Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He asked for alms and stretched out his palms, and this is what Peter did say. Perhaps you've heard the first stanza of the children's song, Silver and Gold Have I None. It would be appropriate, if you're going to ask, what did Peter say to the layman, to also ask, what did Peter say to the crowds? What did Peter say to the Sadducees and the priests? What did Peter say to Annas and Caiaphas and Alexander And John, what did Peter and the other believers say to God in prayer? Perhaps you noticed as we were reading, this is an incredibly long story. It is one single story. Yes, the layman was healed, but that is just the beginning of a series of events, a chain of events that happens. And so this morning, I would like to examine the entirety of this story. If We are preaching a series through the book of Acts. It might be appropriate to slow down and consider each scene what it would have to contribute to our application this morning, like you were examining the pearls on a pearl necklace. But there is a chain that binds all of those pearls together, and there is a chain in this story that binds each of these scenes together, and it is that chain I would like us to examine today. Please look with me at verse 6 of chapter 3. What is the chain that binds all of these scenes together? Look with me at verse 6 of chapter 3. Peter says... I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now glance down with me at verse 16 of chapter 3. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now look with me at verse 7 of chapter 4, the next scene. Peter is arrested, he's thrown into prison, he's brought the next day before the chief rulers, and they ask him, verse 7 of chapter 4, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter's answer is in verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Then he proceeds to say, look at verse 12 of chapter four, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In response, the leaders, look at verse 17, say to Peter and to John, but in order that it may not spread further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They're released, they pray to God, and they close their prayer in verse 30 of chapter 4, saying, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What is the chain that binds all these scenes together? It's the name. It's the name of Jesus. And so this morning, if there was a title for the sermon, it would be this. What's so special about Jesus' name? This is the question I want us to consider this morning. What's so special about name? about Jesus' name, that it would bind all of these scenes together, that Luke would give particular emphasis to belabor the point that Jesus' name is in every one of these scenes. What's the significance behind this? And this morning, I'll give us three simple words to help us answer this question, what's so special about Jesus' name? The first is this word, authority. What's so special about Jesus' name? The first is this word, authority. Authority. If you look at the text again with me this morning at verse 6, Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you, and he gives him something, and that something is the name of Jesus, and that name is what heals this man. Again, verse 16, he says, his name, by faith in his name, this man has been made well. If you read these verses, it almost seems as if Jesus', were, Jesus name is this sort of Word that Peter's leveraging onto his life such that people would be healed. You might arrive at that conclusion if you keep reading it, chapter 4, verse 7. It says, by what power or by what name? The word name is almost put in equivalence with this idea of power and authority. Now, there are many Christian people who have this idea that if they utter the name of Jesus in prayer or in some event, They will get what they desire. There are many, many professing Christians who say things in the name of Jesus, fill in the blank. Let it be done. Expecting to receive whatever they put in that blank. It's almost as if Jesus' name has become this sort of catch-all category. You just utter Jesus' name and whatever you desire, you receive. Perhaps you've heard someone pray like this. And in Jesus' name, may this be done. There was a song that was released last year, and the title of the song is, In Jesus' Name. And I just want to read to you several lines of this song. I speak the name of Jesus over you. I pray that the fear inside would flee, in Jesus' name. I pray miracles over your life, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. I speak the name of all authority. There is an understanding about this phrase, in Jesus' name, that is not what this text is trying to communicate that views Jesus' name almost as this magic word. You invoke the name of Jesus, and whatever you desire happens. Now, as believers, we know this experientially. We utter the name of Jesus frequently in our prayers, so much so that it's probably become a tag we throw on at the end of our prayers and don't even think about. We pray for something, and we pray in Jesus' name, and we've maybe uttered that many, many times, and we haven't received what we've prayed for. What is the view of authority that Luke is trying to communicate? What is the view of authority in Jesus' name? What is Peter driving at as he keeps references, referencing this phrase over and over again? Well, by way of analogy, consider with me this morning this scenario. Perhaps when you were a child, maybe you had siblings, I don't know. Your parent asked you to go and summon your other sibling for dinner. And so your other siblings may be in another room in the house or in the backyard, and you go and find them, and you tell them it's time for dinner, and there's a little bit of pushback. They don't want to leave what they're doing. You tell them, man, it's time for dinner. We're, We're eating right now. The food's getting cold, and still they don't come. What is the thing you're going to say that is going to summon them? Mom told me it's time for dinner. As you bring the name of your mom into the conversation, you are bringing authority into the scenario. As they hear the name mom or dad, they don't just think of the word mom or dad. They think of something beyond that word. They think of the person themselves. They think as if their mom or dad is standing there right in front of them issuing this news. It is time for dinner. Come right away. As Peter over and over and over again brings Jesus' name into the conversation, it's as if Jesus is standing there in all of his person, in his authority, declaring that this man is to rise up and walk. Peter is appealing to the authority of Jesus' person. And this is particularly significant when you consider Luke's emphases. Luke in contrast to all the other gospel writers, is the only author to include an ascension narrative in his gospel. Volume 2, the book of Acts, written to the same person, he recounts the same event again. Twice he mentions the ascension, noting Jesus is not physically present on this earth. And yet at the same time, at the beginning of Acts, Acts 1, he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication being that although Jesus is not physically present on this earth, he is still working. So when Peter utters and brings Jesus' name into the conversation, he's demonstrating that Jesus, though in heaven, is still working and carrying out the plan that he began on earth. And so Peter brings Jesus' name to the forefront of the conversation. But there is a second dimension we should consider in this idea of authority. And that is the direction that this authority is moving in the passage itself. Look with me again at the text. Peter heals this man in verse 6 in the name of Jesus. He repeats this statement in verse 16. And his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. But then what does Peter do? He's not content to just heal this man. He says, verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Peter heals this man in the name of Jesus, but then he immediately proceeds to preach in the name of Jesus to all the crowds who are surrounding All the crowds who are amazed at this dramatic display of healing he proceeds to preach to them. Why would Peter heal this lame man? Why would he invoke the name of Jesus? Well, there is a connection going on in this passage with the scripture reading that we read this morning. And it's in this phrase, the phrase that Peter utters to this man, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and it's these words, rise up and walk. So I would like you to turn in your Bibles now to Luke 5, the scripture reading from this morning. And I want us to see this connection. you're in Luke chapter 5, consider this story again with me this morning. Jesus is healing a paralytic man, a man who has a very, very similar physical malady to the one that Peter heals. Notice Jesus' first words in this conversation, verse 20. Man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, what is the response of everyone surrounding him? Well, look at verse 21. The scribes and the Pharisees are questioning. They're accusing Jesus of blasphemy because they know only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, in response, poses this scenario. Which of the two is easier to say? And this is very important. Which is easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Well, we would know that the miracle that is greater is for a person not to be healed from their lameness, but to be healed Spiritually, We know that that's a greater miracle, but that's not what Jesus is posing. He's saying, which is easier to say? You can say to someone, your sins are forgiven and no one will know because that's an internal reality. But if you say to someone, rise up and walk, and they do not rise up and walk, it is clear that your words are in vain. And so he says, verse 24, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. There is a stamp of authority on Jesus' message because he heals the man. Now return to Acts two and make the Acts three and make the connection. Twice in the book of Acts, the name of the word name is mentioned prior to this narrative, and I want you to just glance at the wording of the previous reference. And it's Acts two verse thirty-eight. Peter is preaching, and notice specifically the language of what he says. Peter says Acts two thirty-eight to all the people around, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you see the connection? The very next chapter, after Peter has just said, in the name of Jesus, you may have all of your sins forgiven, he walks into the temple and he sees a man who is lame and he says, rise up and walk. It's as if a stamp of authority is placed upon his message, that stamp being that Jesus Christ of Nazareth has the authority to forgive you of all of your sins. Do you see why Peter would invoke the name of Jesus? Peter is bringing authority of Jesus into the conversation. And that authority is in the direction of forgiveness of sins. Why does the name of Jesus have the authority to forgive you of your sins? Well there's one other mention of this word name. Previous in Acts 2. And I want to make this connection as well. Look with me in Acts 2 verse 21. Peter's quoting from Joel. And he says, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This word Lord is the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. All the Israelites would have known if they call upon the covenant name of God, that is the name whereby they might experience salvation. That God's person is one who saves. He's a saving God. Then he equates at the end of his sermon, if you repent and believe in the name of Jesus, you will be saved you have forgiveness of your sins. He's making a statement about the deity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus alone has the authority to forgive you of your sins. So when you come to Acts 3 and he heals the man, it is no surprise we see the direction. Look at the direction that happens in chapter 4. Remember, he's brought forward. They ask him, by what power or by what name did you do this? And he says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. It's the name of Jesus. It's the person of God who's responsible for healing this man. But then look at verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, this is a statement of authority. Peter is drawing attention to the authority of Jesus Christ as God to save you of all of your sins. It might be naive this morning to think that every single person in this room has called upon the name of Jesus to be saved. You might be naive to assume that in the gathering of this many people that every single person in here is following the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Perhaps you're a child in here this morning You're 8, you're 10, you're 12, and you've never called upon the name of Jesus to save you. You've never accepted the fact that you are in need of saving. This is the moment for you to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. In Him alone is salvation. Many in here have called upon the name of the Lord. What would be the application of this authority for you? As you step out into the workplace this week, or into your community, in a very real sense, you bear authority. You go in Jesus' name. You have knowledge that not everyone else does, and that's this authoritative knowledge, that in Jesus' name alone is salvation. You have authority. What does that inform your proclamation of the gospel? How does that structure the way you present Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is not just an option of many. Jesus Christ is the only option. He alone is salvation. In the name of Jesus Christ is authority. That brings us now to a second dimension of the significance of Jesus' name. What's so special about Jesus' name? Well, Jesus' name displays authority. But there is also one other word I want to give you, and that is this word, association. What's so special about Jesus' name? Well, association. Ironically, this sermon falls on the first of the month, which happens to be name tag Sunday. And everyone in here, hopefully, is wearing a name tag. Now, you had the option when you walked in this morning to write your name on a name tag and place it onto your body and I'm curious as to what you wrote. You probably wrote the name that you go by. Maybe if you're you know, a little bit childish, you wrote something other than your name, something you want to be known by. But whatever you wrote on that name tag is how people begin to associate you. They associate you and your actions with the name that is on your name tag, such that if someone utters your name in the presence of someone else, maybe you're not there, memories and stories begin to come to your mind of the person. You don't just think about a person when you hear their name. You think about associations. Maybe it's one specific story or memory that you really associate with that person. I don't think there are any Kevins in here. But if I say the name Kevin, what do you think of? Well, perhaps you know someone named Kevin. You don't just think of the person Kevin, you probably think of a story or some association or some experience you had with someone named Kevin. When the apostles uttered the name Jesus, when Peter said Jesus' name, what was the association that was in his mind? What was the place that his mind first went to? There were many things, many places he could have gone. In fact, there are many names of Jesus uttered in this passage. Look with me at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 14, Peter refers to Jesus as the Holy and Righteous One. Chapter 3, verse 15, he refers to Jesus as the author of life. Chapter four, verse twelve. Here, for, or verse eleven. Here refers to Jesus as the cornerstone. Beyond all of these associations that Peter has in his mind about the name of Jesus, there is one that rises to the surface, and that is this word, servant. Look with me again at chapter three, verse thirteen. Thirteen. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Then in the prayer twice, they refer to Jesus as the servant. Chapter 4, verse 27, and chapter 4, verse 30. The association that Peter has in his mind about the person of Jesus is that Jesus is the servant. When we hear the language of Jesus as the servant, perhaps where immediately our mind goes to something menial. We understand that Jesus came not to be served, but to seek and to save those who are lost. Maybe that's where our mind goes. And that would be appropriate. Jesus served his disciples. He served many people. He served them through healings. He washed his disciples' feet. But Peter here is moving beyond just this idea of service to make a theological connection about Peter, about Jesus' name. And that Jesus is the servant he is a specific servant perhaps you know the servant that Jesus or that Peter is referencing Jesus to be and if you don't that's okay i would like to show it to us this morning we need to work through about four three or four passages in isaiah and we'll do so rather quickly so if you could turn to isaiah chapter 42 we can make this understanding what is the association that is behind jesus name primarily in the mind of Peter, and it is this idea of Jesus as the servant. In Isaiah chapter forty-two, look with me at verse one, as you're turning, there are three there are four songs in the book of Isaiah called the servant songs. And every single one of them is about Jesus Christ. They're about the Messiah, about one who is to come. This is the first of them. Look at chapter forty two, verse one. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. Well, it's interesting. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 4, Luke is the only gospel writer to include Jesus quoting from Isaiah 61 that the spirit of the Lord is upon him. He's making this connection between Jesus and the servant. Turn with me to the next servant song that's in chapter 49 in Isaiah. Chapter 49, this is the second servant song about one who is to come who will be known as the servant. Look at verse five. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Now we understand what the mission of the servant is. It's to bring Jacob back to him to restore the nation of Israel. Look with me at verse six. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant? To raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The purpose of, For the servant is that salvation would go to the end of the earth. And then turn with me. We'll go just for sake of time to the last servant song. And you know this one. This is a servant song that is referenced often in relation to Jesus. It's Isaiah chapter 53. So turn with me to Isaiah 53. What is the association? In Peter's mind, it's Jesus is the servant. What does the servant come to do? The spirit of the Lord is upon the servant. He's going to come and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. How is he going to do that? And chapter 53 answers that question. But glance with me earlier in verse 13 of chapter 52 where this song begins. Chapter 52 of Isaiah, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. You might think, wow, this servant is going to be glorified. He's going to be one who is significant. This exact language is repeated in Acts chapter 3, that the Lord has glorified his servant, Jesus. But how does that glorification process take place? What is the means by which this servant becomes associated so closely in the mind of Peter? Look with me at the wording of Isaiah 53. Just glance down at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Verse 4, he's borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, all we like have see- sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7 of chapter 53, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? When the apostles think of Jesus as the servant. When they ascribe that association to Jesus name. They are ascribing suffering. They are ascribing affliction. They are ascribing all of that. For the forgiveness of sins. They are ascribing all of that. Because the iniquity of us all was laid on him. So when you turn to Acts 3 and 4. And Peter describes Jesus as the servant. It's no surprise that the first place Peter goes in his preaching is to this quality of Jesus' life. The first place he goes when he preaches and says, In the name of Jesus, the first thing he describes is the suffering. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided him to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. The first place Peter goes is to the suffering that Jesus went through on your behalf so that you might have all of your sins forgiven. When Peter preaches again to the The Sadducees and the chief priests, notice where his mind goes. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, he's going to this theology that Jesus is the suffering servant. This is the image that is embedded in his mind. So when you turn to the ending of this chapter and you read Acts chapter 4, And you read verse 27. And then they pray to God. Having ascribed culpability. Having ascribed guilt to those people of Israel for crucifying Jesus. Notice what he says about the mission of the servant. Verse 27. Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate. Along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And you would expect him to say. They are guilty. And he's already said that, but notice what he says in verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. This is exactly in keeping with the flow of Isaiah 53. This is exactly in keeping with the mission of the servant. Isaiah 53, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. All throughout the gospel of Luke, Jesus has been reminding his disciples It is necessary. It is necessary. The plan of God for redemption is that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would suffer. And finally, after years upon this earth, and Jesus having said it, now the disciples and the apostles have realized the plan. They have realized that God's will and his mission was that the servant would suffer. That it was his will that he would die and be crucified and rise again. If you're sitting here this morning as a believer... You are sitting here as a direct recipient of God's grace. That it was his will to crush his servant. So that all of your sins will be carried away in him. This is the greatest association you could ever ascribe to the name of Jesus. Jesus is the servant. The one who has borne our sins. What's so special about Jesus' name? It's authoritative. In his name is the power of God. It's the presence of God. In Jesus' name, there is an association. The association with the servant. He's forgiven us of all of our sins. But that brings us to a third idea behind the name of Jesus. And that is this idea of imitation. Or you could say emulation. Imitation, emulation. If you think about Luke and Acts together as one. And you think about Peter. Which version of Peter do you relate more closely with? The version of Peter in volume one. Who denies Jesus Christ three times. In front of everyday people. Or the version of Peter in volume two. Who preaches Christ boldly. In the face of people who were responsible for the death of Jesus. Which version of Peter do you tend to relate to you in your own evangelism? I dare say For us in here, it's not version 2. If you go around and you ask Christian people about their spiritual disciplines, you may find people who are consistent in their time in the Word. But oftentimes you'll find Christian people who are frustrated and discouraged about their sharing of Christ, about the proclaiming of the gospel, about their preaching in the name of Jesus. It is very easy as a preacher to make people feel bad and guilty About their lack of evangelism. But that is not my intention this morning. If you notice this passage. You notice something about Peter. That as Peter preaches. As Peter lives his life. He lives a life. Of imitation. Imitation of the authority. In Jesus name. And the association. Of Jesus as the servant. And we see this in chapter 4 of the text. Look with me. At verse 5. Remember, Peter is gathered now. He's thrown into prison, brought out the next day. Verse 5, he's placed before the rulers and elders and scribes. Verse 6, now they're named Annas, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander. They ask him, verse 7, by what power, by what name did you do this? And he boldly preaches, so much to the extent that his state culminates in an exclusive statement. Verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven given among men by which we was saved. This is a very different Peter than we read, vol- read about in volume one. Look at their assessment of this individual. Look at the way they see Peter. Look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. Notice the association they make with Peter. Verse 13, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. As Peter lives his life, it becomes clear to people who are watching him that this is one who is closely related to the name of Jesus. This is one in whom they recognize the person of Jesus himself. They recognize that this person was with Jesus on the basis of his bold proclamation in front of high-ranking political and religious authorities. You see, this prospect of imitation demonstrates that something dramatic has happened to Peter. You read volume one and volume two, these Peters look very, very different. So this begs this question, what has happened whereby Peter now is imitating Jesus Christ and preaching boldly in the name of Jesus Christ? Well, there's a very short phrase at the beginning of verse eight that clues us in to exactly what is occurring. Look with me at verse eight of chapter four. How is Peter this bold? Look with me at Acts 4, verse 8. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not just an incidental phrase that Luke decides to include in his narrative. He includes this to make the remark that Peter is doing everything he is doing as a direct result of the ministry of the Spirit internally. And this is significant, again, in Luke's writings. If you turn back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I would like to show us this. Jesus, in his ascension, speaks to Peter and the other apostles, and notice what he says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the end of the earth. This is not just everyday language he's leveraging into the conversation. Jesus is picking specific words for a specific purpose. When he says the Spirit of God will be upon you, He's making a connection in the same way that the Spirit of God was upon Jesus and enabled him in his ministry as the servant of the Lord, as we already read this morning in Isaiah 42. Now this Spirit is transferred to his representatives. The apostles, the disciples of Jesus Christ follow in the footsteps of Jesus because they are filled with the Spirit. And then this language, it says, they will be witnesses in Jerusalem Judea and Samaria and this phrase to the end of the earth. It's a direct quotation from Isaiah 49, verse 6. A passage that is describing the ministry of the servant. The point being that as Peter thinks about his life, he thinks about his own life and his experience on this earth on this earth as an extension of what Jesus' mission was. Jesus, as the servant of the Lord, is to proclaim salvation to the Gentiles, to the end of the earth. And now Peter says, in the same way, the Spirit of God is upon us so that we may be witnesses to the end of the earth. So when Luke says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he preaches boldly. He's given us the solution. The difference between the Peter of volume one and the Peter of volume two is that the ministry of the Spirit of God is active in his heart and is giving him boldness. This is why in the prayer, Acts chapter 4, there is one request. After they're released, there is one prayer request. Look with me at Acts chapter 4, verse 29. What is that prayer request? That prayer request is exactly what we're talking about this morning. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Well, notice the results. Look at verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Perhaps you are here this morning and you are discouraged. Maybe the Lord has laid someone on your heart who you know who is an unbeliever. And you know there is some sense of responsibility to you. As a Christian this morning, if you are seated here, you are standing on the shoulders of men and women for ages ago who have taken up the ministry of the servant, the ministry to proclaim the good news to the end of the earth. You sit here standing on their shoulders. These apostles carried forward the ministry of the servant. They proclaimed the gospel, and as a result, they were persecuted. But some heard and some believed, and those people went forward and left Jerusalem and went to other places in the earth. The gospel spreads out, and maybe in one region, it's entirely snuffed out. They're all persecuted, and they're all put to death. But the gospel keeps going forward until the point when you get arrive in the Middle Ages, the gospel is still going forward and going forward and going forward, and then men and women are bleeding and dying and sacrificing their life so that the ministry of the servant would keep going forward. And now, here this morning, you sit here standing on their shoulders, men and women who have taken up this mission, the mission of the servant. The Spirit of God is in you, enabling you to proclaim the good news, to proclaim that Jesus is the servant who bears away our sins, who has authority to forgive. That mission has now fallen to you. You may be discouraged this morning about your carrying out of that mission. But I'm here to encourage you. If you are a follower of Christ, the Spirit of God indwells you. You have everything you need. Perhaps all that you need is to take a moment and pray that God, by His Spirit, would give you boldness to preach. Give you boldness to proclaim the good news. You may preach the good news and never see one person to come to Christ. But you have carried out the ministry of the servant. You may preach the gospel and be thrown into prison. But you have fulfilled the ministry of the servant. to Preach the good news. And From time to time, oftentimes to suffer. You may preach the good news and 2,000 people, like in these stories, may come to Christ. And you have done the ministry of the servant. You may preach the gospel and you may suffer for it, but you will have been faithful. You will have been faithful to the calling that's laid down at the beginning of the church here in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4. Ask us some probing questions this morning. Have we confused silence about Jesus as wisdom? Certainly there is a ditch on either side in terms of evangelism. Brashness is not boldness. There's a way you can proclaim the gospel that is damaging to the gospel message. To proclaim the gospel not in the spirit that the gospel has come to us in love and in sincerity with the reality of judgment. To proclaim it not in that spirit is to do message harm to the message itself. It's to distort the message. To proclaim that the message is only love is to distort the message. There's a way in which you can proclaim the message that is not honoring to it. I think if we search our hearts, we are more prone to silence than we are to boldness. We have confused silence with wisdom. Let me encourage us this morning that the Spirit of God will enable you to be bold about the proclamation of the gospel. It is not a different spirit that indwells you that indwelt Peter, that enabled Peter to minister. So this morning, as we remind ourselves of the authority of Jesus to forgive our sins. As we remind ourselves as his association as the servant who has borne our sins away from us forever. As we remind ourselves of the importance of imitating this person in boldness, may God give us grace to carry out the mission of the servant. Let's bow our heads in word of prayer.